stay calm, don't panic. You got this. Hey guys, welcome to the Don't Panic Podcast. This is Carly Duke. Hey, and this is Chris Roby. And we are so excited about the interview that we have lined up for you today. Um, Chris was able to sit down with Shiloh Jones. Um, I was not invited. Thanks no, a lot, Chris. No, I said you stay home for this one, Carly. <laughs> I got this. No, but we um, had to do this one over a Skype interview because Shiloh lives in Denver, Colorado Denver. Springs, mm-hmm. Denver. Um, and so, obviously, I wish we could have flown out to Denver to talk to her in person, but that didn't happen. Um, but well, but, we, but we did meet Shiloh in Colorado. Yes, we did. And that was great. We got to meet her in January um, at NCYM. She actually came to one of our Teen Lifeline trainings. So she got trained on our curriculum and how to take support groups um, to her local school. And so that's how we got connected. And then Chris got to sit down with her and talk to her for this podcast. Yeah, we at that training, uh, we this podcast idea was just forming and we didn't have all the equipment and we weren't quite ready to do it yet. But I was like, Shiloh, we need to talk to you because her big area of expertise as a social worker is in the foster care system in Colorado. And so she works with students and um, foster families to place students in in the places that um, they need to be to be safe and um, to get space if their family is going through something that they don't need to be in the home during that time. But as I was talking to her, it occurred to me, I know nothing about this, you know, and I, and I was in youth work for, for nine years and I know I had students that came through who were in the foster system. Um, I had no idea what they had to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And she had mentioned a little bit of that at the training. And I thought, you know, this would be something great for anyone who works with a student to be able to hear uh, kind of from the front lines what students have to deal with here. So we sat down over Skype, and I was just blown away with her level of uh, expertise on on the subject and even if you don't know someone who is a student who is in the foster system, you need to listen to this because um, kind of like what Sally Gary said a couple of interviews ago, you know, you might not think you know someone who's in, you know, in a certain mm-hmm. situation, but likely you do. Right. Um, likely, you know, someone who is, is dealing with this. I, I thought this was some fantastic material. Yeah. I'm definitely excited to hear it and excited for you to hear it. Um, all you listeners out there. Um, and before we kick off to the interview, we just wanted to give, um, some props to Lovett Christian University um, for sponsoring this podcast, for helping get us started. Um, we mention them a lot, so you might get tired of hearing of them, but hopefully not. Because I am not tired of it, Carly. Oh, never, no. because they are a great school. Um, and if you haven't, the last however many times we've mentioned it, please go check them out at lcu.edu. Um, check out the great work that they're doing in Lubbock. Um, it's a great resource for students, anyone looking to go to a great private Christian university. Yeah. So please enjoy this uh, interview with Shiloh Jones and let us know what you think. Panic, you will not. All right. Well, uh, everyone, thank you for uh, uh, checking in. This is uh, Shiloh Jones, who is a social worker up in Colorado. And today we're going to spend some time talking about uh, foster care, adoption, but basically students who would be in that um, in that setting and basically how, how could we help them better. And so, first of all, Shiloh, thanks for being with us today. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, uh, your credentials, you know, just kind of um, what you do up there in Colorado. So what I do is I work for an agency that licenses foster and adoptive parents and in Colorado, you can be a foster parent through an individual county 
or through an agency like mine, the benefits of doing it through an agency is you can have placement of any kid in Colorado versus having to be restricted by the county in which you live. Um, I actually just moved to a new position instead of being a case manager for the foster care homes. I actually, um, right now I'm in charge of placing kids in those homes. Okay. So what, what got you into this kind of work? Cause this is not, this can't be easy work. <laughs> by <any means. laughs> No, um, a lot of times it's not. Yeah. So what got you into this? What, 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 what draws you to this? Um, I have a degree in social work. My mom was a social worker as well and worked with teens. When my husband and I first moved to Colorado, I was working at um, a residential treatment center for basically school-age kids who had some behavioral and mental health challenges. Um, And that was tough. That was physically tough. It was emotionally tough. But I decided that I really liked working Um, with kids and teenagers who just had had really some bad breaks in life, Mm -hmm. a lot of times through no fault of their own, Mm -hmm. and who just hadn't been given a good start. Um, So I got out of that eventually, just got out of the direct care side of it, um, and found a job working in foster care. One of the things that kind of drew me to that was that my sister and I were both adopted as infants. And so being able to... um, help find good homes for other kids, even if it was short-term or long-term adoptions was just really important to me. Okay. That's really cool. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. That's, that's, that's great to know that. So uh, what you talked about the challenges that some of the, the kids face, what are, what are some of your biggest challenges as a social worker in this role? Um, a lot of times it can be that, um, these kids just aren't raised in stable homes. Mm -hmm. So that affects every part of their life from the, the science details of how their brain and their body develop to, um, how they interact with people. So you might have a five-year-old who would come from, you know, a quote, typical family who, when he's mad, he is able to tell an adult someone made me mad. One of my kids, when he's mad, might punch someone Mm -hmm. or throw something or poop on the floor Mm -hmm. because that's what he witnessed. And so that's what he does. Right. Um, so it's just, they, they were not taught appropriate coping skills. And a lot of times their bodies and their brains are still reacting from a place of trauma and they just don't feel safe at all, and they just don't have any stability. So those developmental issues going into the teenage, teenage years, mm-hmm. um, th- I'm, I'm guessing those follow. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So how does that look for someone who's more of an adolescent? So a lot of times what we see in teenagers is, you know, have a 16, 17-year-old boy, and they can look like any other 16, 17-year-old boy. But developmentally, they may be closer to 10 or 12. So when you have them in a big peer group, you're going to have teens who often get picked on or they annoy their peers. Um, Sometimes they do it on purpose because they know they don't fit in. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll also have, um, I see this more with, with girls where, 
especially if they have had any kind of sexual trauma or sexual abuse, um, or even if they just weren't taught about appropriate boundaries, their boundaries are, are really off hmm. and they don't know what's appropriate and what's not. So their boundaries can be very indiscriminate and the way that they give and receive love and affection, especially to men is sexually. So you can have a 14-year-old girl who goes up to random men and talks about sexually explicit things. Hmm. And she may not even understand why that's construed as negative because to her, like, that could be a totally normal thing. Gotcha. Um, so they just have very different foundational beginnings, even with school. You know, like my kids, my oldest daughter's in kindergarten. And she has to do homework, even at, you know, six years old. And so she's going to grow up doing her homework and her grades are going to be important. These kids, we get kids in middle school and high school who no adult other than their teachers may have ever asked them about their schoolwork. So when we get them in foster families and all of a sudden we have people asking about their grades, they get really upset hmm. because that's a totally new thing for them. Yeah. So, so let's back up a little bit and, you know, I guess what I'm wondering, and this is just, and you'll hear that a lot of this in my questions is a lot mm -hmm. of, ig a lot of ignorance, <laughs> um, you know, cause I, you know, being in ministry, I know that I had students that came through who were, uh, in some kind of system, you know, either foster or adoptive care. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I even paid a whole lot of mind to that when I probably should have. Um, but in general, how does a kid enter the foster care system? Like, like what's the what gets them in in the first place? So the way they would first come in would be um, typically through a report of abuse and neglect is made to the county authorities where they live. That is investigated, and if it's found to be um, a founded allegation that they are living in an unsafe environment, then those kids are removed um, by a court order and placed into foster care. Um. Most counties now always look at placing with a relative first. So placing um, with any kind of foster home or group home is usually a last resort. They're always going to try to find a relative first. Um, the, other th the other way kids can be placed other than abuse and neglect is a delinquency case. And that's basically when they are said to be beyond control of their parents. So if you've got a young man or woman who is basically skip, like skipping school, getting a bunch of charges, being arrested, and their parents just are not in control, hmm. then they can be court ordered by a judge into out-of-home care as well. Um, so that's kind of how that goes. They're never supposed to be placed away from their parents forever. The goal is always return home unless the parents relinquish their rights or it's just determined that that reunification is not going to be possible, which is always like we try everything to avoid that. Would we you, always want kids back with their parents. Is there, do you have any ballpark on like how like percentage-wise how many kids don't ever go back home? Like it's, it's, it ends up being permanent? Uh, in, I, I, guess in your, I guess in your experience. Well, and you know, I'm not even sure I could give you an accurate number because so much of that depends on like what age they came into care. Hmm. So 
little ones are reunited probably more often than teenagers are. Hmm. Um, and that also depends on the state. Some states push reunification really hard. Um, some states aren't pushing it as hard. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. And some ki- some states let kids just kind of age out of care versus actually terminating their rights. So there's a lot of gray area, especially for older kids. Okay. So, you know, you talked about some states pushing for uh, reunification. Is that, is that a trend now? That, or is, that, is, is that, I guess my question is the direction that foster care um, law is going. Is that, is that mm-hmm. the direction that things are going now or it is is? yeah out of home care is um they're definitely pushing reunification more not not to the detriment of kids hopefully Mm -hmm. but what a lot of states and counties are doing is trying to keep kids in home with in-home services in place and avoid placing them out of home at all so what kind of services would that be Uh, so that might be like you know, say a county human services department gets involved because the kids are unsupervised and they're, you know, seven and eight, or um, they're coming to school dirty and a teacher notices a bruise and the kid says, dad hit him or, or something. Um, what a lot of county authorities are trying to do now is put intensive in-home services in place. So that might be a parenting coach who's there in the home, maybe like 20 hours a week, Hmm. just kind of hanging out and observing and giving parenting tips to the parents to put some more structure in place, helping the kids learn to express their feelings and use better coping skills. Hmm. Um, That could be ordering um, domestic violence classes and some drug and alcohol classes and testing for the parents. And then those things are kind of contingent on placement. So if parents can do these things, the kids can remain home. If they can't, the kids will be removed. Okay. So you talked about placement. Um, And I know this is probably different from state to state, but um, how long do foster children typically stay at a particular home? And I know, like I said, I know there's a ton of factors there, but, you know, what's what's a typical length of stay for a student? I... I would say nine months, but that's like a huge ballpark Mm -hmm. number. Um, I love it when we can minimize moves. Mm -hmm. Like ideal situation for me, if a kid has to be placed, is we place them in a home and they return home from that same foster home. Mm. And they never have to move. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons kids move and bounce between foster homes. Um, Some of it is foster parents can't handle the kid's behavior. Sometimes it's they need a different level of care. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different reasons. And I've also seen kids who've had like their number of placements has been 25 or more. So it's a lot. Ideally, I like to say kids stay in one home the whole time they're in care because Mm -hmm. every move is another loss and another trauma. Even if the kid is saying, I hate it here, I want to go somewhere else, it's still another loss. Okay. Well, so let's talk about that loss, the trauma side of it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess I'm just wondering how or what, 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 what's, what kind of emotions do 
does someone in a foster care typically go through? You know, what kinds of emotions, what kind of things do they struggle with being in the foster system? It's, I mean, it's huge. It's basically probably the entire stages of grief. (laughs) Um, Everything from anger at being placed in the system and angry at your parents um, to anger at the foster parents because it's a new situation and they're telling you to do stuff you've never had to do before. Um, a lot of guilt and shame because even if these kids have never, even if they're in care and it's nothing to do with them, like it's not because of their behaviors or delinquency or things like that, it's still that guilt and shame a lot of times because of the abuse and neglect that happened to them. Um, it's embarrassing. It's not stuff they want to talk about, makes them different from their friends at school. Mm-hmm. They feel like the bad kids. Um, lots of identity issues, especially, um, with kids who are placed in, you know, if I've got a white suburban middle-class foster family and we place some young African-American kids there, that's a huge identity issue. Mm -hmm. They're coming into a family that's nothing like their family and not just the way they look, but everything from like the food they eat and family culture can be different. Um, we try to do a lot of training with our foster parents around incorporating as many things from a child's family of origin into the foster home as possible. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grief Because even if we would look at someone's situation and say, aren't you so glad to be out of your house? You never had any food. There was no electricity. Your dad beat you or your mom had all these boyfriends that were abusing you or whatever. Like we would look at that situation and say, aren't you so glad to be out? These kids and adolescents look at that and say, no, that's my family. Right. That's home. Right. That's home. Yeah. And that's, that's hard for foster parents to understand sometimes, but no matter how bad it is, it's still their family and it's still who they love and who they want to be with. And these kids are fiercely protective of their parents. Mm-hmm. Even though I've had kids say like, I know my mom can't take care of me and I know she's not a great mom, but I still want to be with her. Mm-hmm. And so that's, those are huge emotions that most adults I know can't handle properly, much less, you know, 10, 12, 14 year old kids. Right. Well, I want to, and, and I always want to jump to how can we help a little bit more, but <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll get there in a second. I, I, I do want to just talk about some of the unique circumstances that a, a kid in foster care would have mm-hmm. to deal with. Just things that would be and I know you've covered some just through through the conversation, but just what are some unique things that would be completely different for a foster kid that have to go through that maybe a kid in a a stable home uh, wouldn't have to deal with? I think one of the biggest is that there are a million people involved in their lives. So every month they have to see um, a caseworker, a, a guardian ad litem who's like their lawyer, um, you, sometimes like a a CASA worker who's like a volunteer or a mentor, um, maybe a few other professionals, a therapist, which is usually required when you're in foster care. 
So there's a lot of people that are involved in their life and a lot of people that are making decisions for them that they don't have a say in. Or if they do have a say, like they don't have as much of a say as some other teenagers would. Even, and even things like I have a couple of, of kids that I have worked with who play sports. They're in basketball and football and things like that. Instead of getting a ride home from practice with a teammate or a coach, um, I, they have to wait for their foster parent to pick them up because there's laws around who they can get in a car with because that person has to be background checked and we have to have their DMV record. Um, most of the time, foster kids can't spend the night anywhere else other than a licensed foster home because we have to make sure the adults they're with are safe and background checked. So, you know, when I was a teenager, I got rides home from church with my friends all the time. I spent the night with people, um, and things like that. And these kids can't do that. And they can't just ask their foster parent for permission. They have to ask a County caseworker for permission. And sometimes they have to ask a judge for permission to go out of state. And so there's all these extra things. Um, they can't, most of the time kids can't have Facebook pages Hmm. or if they can, um, they have to have limited contact with certain people or like every grown up in their life has the ability to log into their Facebook page at any time, which is not a bad practice for parents of any teenager, but it's not just their foster parent. There's probably six or seven adults that can access their cell phone, their Facebook page, their email, their school reports at any time. Wow. So I've had a lot of people say like, there's just no privacy at all. And there's so many restrictions. Um, you know, even things like some of my girls wanting to go to homecoming, you know, and normally if a girl wants to go to homecoming, her parents are going to meet her date and stuff like that. And she can go to like an after party as long as it's appropriate Well, in this case, she has to get like special permission to go to this after party, but then her foster parent has to pick her up and take her there because she can't get a ride from anyone else. And it's just, there's just so many hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. And as much as we try to help them have a normal teenage experience, sometimes it's just impossible. And it's not because people are trying to nitpick. It's because there's laws and regulations that, the professionals have to follow, mm-hmm. which I'm sure those laws are in place, you know, to, to keep them safe and absolutely all that. But I also, you know, I guess I can't help but think if I was in that position as a foster care, a student foster care, it would almost feel like I was being punished a little bit too. Absolutely. You know? And I don't know if they articulate that or if that's how they feel or I don't know. I mean, I just, yeah, a lot of them do. I mean, one of the big ones I forgot is they can't get their driver's license. Really? Yeah. Well, that's actually, that's not true. They can get their driver's license, but they can't get a car or drive. And it's an insurance issue Hmm. because if you think about it, like who's going to pay for that insurance, Hmm. their parents aren't going to pay for it. The County can't pay for it. So unless they have a phenomenal foster parent, which I've got a few of them Mm -hmm. and the foster parents willing to pay for the insurance for a teenager, which is ridiculously expensive. They don't have anyone to pay for that insurance. So it's, it's stuff like that, that absolutely it's unfair. 
-hmm. And it feels like they're being punished just because they're in the foster care system. And sometimes it's really true that they they're in the system because they've made some very poor choices. Mm -hmm. Um, but sometimes that's not the case. And even if they have made those poor choices, doesn't mean they should be punished forever. There's just a lot of flaws with their freedoms right now. Mm -hmm. And and that's pretty much every state's going to have those issues, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, obviously not just Colorado, but every state's going to have those flaws in the, in the system. Yeah. Um, so just real quick before we move forward, you know, you talked about not being punished forever. What, what, what age do foster kids typically age out? And then after they age out, what's kind of, what's next for them? So they can age out anywhere between 18 and 21. Um, a lot of times the kids think that on their 18th birthday, they discharge and that it's almost never the case. Hmm. Um, they will not discharge a kid if they're still in high school or if they haven't gotten their diploma yet. So they'll wait till they graduate. They also don't just like kick kids out of the system and just say, all right, peace out. You're 18. You're on your own. Mm -hmm. They really want to try and make sure they're in a good place and they're stable before they um, close their case. One of the ways, like in Colorado, we have a program called Chafee. Don't ask me what it stands for because I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> it's it's basically an emancipation training program. Um, they do weekly classes with the teens. They can start doing it at 16. They do weekly classes, everything from how to make a grocery list to how to do a budget, um, how to search for an apartment, how to do a resume, all kinds of stuff like that. They help them with college applications, um, or getting into like apprenticeships kind of stuff like that. They also get paid for every class they attend, which is great. Hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's not comparable to having a stable home and two parents who are helping you, but it's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And it actually is a really good program if teens choose to take advantage of it. And I've seen some kids who have taken advantage of it and had college completely paid for. Um, and they've had like the counties pay the first three months rent on their apartment and set them up with like furniture and all their utilities. On the other hand, I've seen kids who refuse to go to their classes and it's like one hour a week. So they refuse to go. They wouldn't, engage in anything. And so eventually the counties had to release their case and they basically were just couch surfing on friends' couches and working at Wendy's. Hmm. And it's a really sad situation, but at the same time, that's not a situation I'm going to blame on the system because that was their lack of motivation. Right. Right. So it's a really hard balance. Like there's stuff out there and it's not the best but there are some good programs, but it's also like, yeah, we're not just going to give this stuff to you. You have to show us that you can work for it. Right. Well, you, so a little while back, you'd mentioned just the, this, the number of people that are involved in the life of foster care, student Mm -hmm. foster care. Um, and I, I want to kind of start expanding this conversation more towards people who are in helping roles who may, maybe aren't part of the system, but really are right. um, pastors, mentors, um, teachers, um, you know, whoever that looks like. 
Um, what, what what kind of person does a foster care a student foster care really open up to the most? Because they've got a lot of people in their lives who are kind of there because they have to be. You know, what kind of person do they re, will they typically open up to, um, or will they open up to anyone? Maybe that might be the first question. Yeah, I think they will open up. Um, I think they really are all looking for somebody that can say that they're important and can say that they are loved and aren't just these screw up kids. Um, I've seen kids who have great relationships with coaches or people at church or certain teachers at school, um, or an old neighbor. I mean, it can kind of be anyone. The key factor is somebody who's going to stick with them because even a lot of those professionals in their lives who are there change really rapidly. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one case where I was with a kid a significant amount of time, about two and a half years. And in that time, my position was stable, but that, that child was in three different homes and their caseworker from the County changed twice. So even those professional people aren't necessarily stable adults. They change a lot. And so what these kids need is healthy adults who are going to be consistent. Um, and who also are going to hold them accountable while still being their, their friend. And just, I think just being a good example, Mm -hmm. you know, if it's, if it's somebody at church, if there's kids at church, um, who, you know, aren't in great situations, even if it's not in foster care, even if it's like they're living with an aunt because their mom and dad can't take care of them, just be that one person that will give them a ride or will take them to lunch. But being consistent is so important because they've had so many people flake out on them. Oh yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess along those lines, let's say that I'm an adult who is, is in that helping role and I'm willing to be consistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what issues should I be most sensitive to, um, in building that building that relationship? You know, what, 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 what do, where do I need to keep my eyes open, uh, and be, be mindful, sensitive to the, that student? I think always being aware of kind of what's going on in their life and don't ask them a bunch of nosy questions. Um, they get enough people asking them nosy questions, but if they, I mean, I think anybody that works with kids and teens is usually able to kind of gauge, okay, do they want to talk about this or do they not? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they say something like, I got a phone call from my mom last night. You can say, Oh, how did it go? Um, and have that conversation, mm-hmm. but you don't have to ask, Hey, so why isn't she living with you? And why is she in jail? Or, you know, you don't have to go into all that, but just, Hey, how'd that conversation go? Mm-hmm. Um, or just kind of gauge where they're at and see how they're doing. Um, if all of a sudden, there's a big change in attitude or a big change in mood, or they stop coming to school. They stop coming to church. 
you can prod a little bit. I think try to find out what's going on, what's different, what changed. Um, I think also one of the, something that's big is being sensitive to anniversary dates mm. and asking about those if you don't know. And you can ask another adult if you don't want to ask the kid. But being sensitive to anniversary dates is this – I have a lot of kids who holidays are naturally tough. But then I have some kids who struggle every year around the time that they were removed from their parents or every year around the time that mom went to jail or um, there's some other major event happened. And so just being sensitive to that timeline. And if you know something like that's going on, mention it in kind of an offhand way, like, hey, I know this is a tough couple of weeks for you. If you want to hang out, let me know. Mm-hmm. And just being just being aware that they have some different challenges that are going on. Um, obviously, if, if teens, kids, anyone ever says anything about hurting themselves or other people, report that right away. Even yeah. if you think it's a total attention-seeking behavior, it's not something to mess around with. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't our job to even decide that I always, I have, I have had so many kids where I'm like, I don't think this is real, but I'm going to report it anyway because Mm -hmm. it's not my call to make. Right. I'd rather let somebody else get into that. Well, and this might be just a a quick practical question I should have asked a little while ago. It just kind of occurred to me if if I'm, if I'm in a relationship with a a student in foster care in a helping role and I'm, and it's not one of those situations where it's an abuse thing, but like I, right. I just, I just not sure what to do or, or if I need to verify something they've said. Who's a, who's a typical point of contact? Um, the, the best person to ask who is more in the system um, typically. I don't know if that's a state to state thing or if that's just kind of across the board. Here's kind of who you ask. Yeah, their county caseworker that has like that actually has custody is always a good resource. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think get to know the foster parent, um, you know, whether it's through church or school, just like you would get to know another kid's parents. You know, if you're a coach and you have a good relationship with a kid on your team, you're going to get to know that kid's parents. Do the same thing with a kid in foster care. Um, you can still get to know their foster parent. That foster parent has a lot of information about the kid, more so than probably anyone else on the professional team. Uh-huh. That foster parent also has a lot of insight into what's happening. Kids really ticked off one day. Maybe he got into a little argument with someone else in the house the night before. So those are really good relationship building skills. Uh-huh. Same thing is if you just randomly call a caseworker and it's like, Hi, my name is Shiloh and I know so and so. They're going to their first response is always going to be like, "Who are you and why are you talking to my kid?" Right. They're because they're automatically going to go to worst-case scenario and I need to protect this this young man or young woman who's in my custody. Mm-hmm. If you get to know the foster parent and can then say, "I'd like to I'd like to still be a responsible person in this youth's life." that foster parent can also go to the caseworker and say, Hey, I know Shiloh. She is a really great support at school or a really great support at church. Um, can we get some background checks done on her so she can have more one-on-one time with so-and-so or stuff like that. So, I mean, those are just some good, 
good avenues to go through. Right. And, and, and I'm not sure if, uh, if there's anything like this, that's uh, universal or state to state, but you know, if you, if you, if you needed to know more about law and just basically like the system that is in place in the, in the state that they live in, mm-hmm. is there, um, is there like a clearinghouse, like an online, like anywhere that someone could go to learn more about this stuff? If there's not, that's fine. I just, I'm, I'm curious if there's a, if there's generally places where people can go and research and know more about the foster system in their particular state. I would just check with my best friend, Google mm-hmm. and just <laughs> like Google Texas foster care regs right. or something like that. Okay. Um, you may get way more information than you bargain for. Right. But that's probably what I would do first. Good starting place, yeah. All right, so we're going to wrap this up, and we've got a couple questions that we ask all sure. of our guests that are real simple. But just first of all, um, for someone listening to this podcast who's been taking in all this great information, you know, what's the most important thing that you would want them to know based upon everything we've talked about today? Man, I think the most important thing is um, remember that these kids and teens – have been through more in their short life than most of us as adults can really process. And even if they're in a stable environment and a stable place now, um, that trauma and that grief and loss does not quickly go away. And I would never advocate for people to um, like brush things aside or just let let kids have a bunch of bad behaviors because they've had a bad break in life. But I always advocate for people to give, especially these kids, a lot of grace and a lot of understanding because sometimes they are really difficult to work with. And a lot of that is just because even biologically their brains and their emotions are so out of whack that they just can't process everything. And, you know, we say things like, use your words and tell me how you're feeling. But we don't actually realize that they are, they actually might be incapable of doing that. Mm. Um, and there's a whole bunch of brain science behind it that it would take me like hours to explain. That's another podcast, right? The brain, right. The, the brain exactly. science podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Brain <laughs> science. But, um, but I mean, they, they really have holes in their development during those periods of time when they were in those traumatic situations. And as adults, it's really difficult sometimes for us to see that and say, okay, you're not just being a pain in my butt. Like you really need love and you really need people to know that you're a good kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for an adult who is working with a, a student in foster care, what's a good question that they could ask them that would just be, you know, uh, a helpful question to ask? Oh, that's tough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we always like to end with the toughest question. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. Hey, no problem. No problem. <laughs> um, if you have a really good relationship, like you guys are, are good, I think a really basic question is just like, do you feel safe? Hmm. And that can be physical safety, but that can also be emotional safety. Like, do they feel like they are in a safe place where they can be themselves and they can start to heal? Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things that I've heard in a training was when people 
are wounded in the context of a relationship, those wounds have to be healed in the context of a relationship. Hmm. So until these kids are safe physically and emotionally, those wounds can't start to heal. That's great. That's and and you know that's that's a great question, but I think a very difficult question to ask. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. I mean, one of the other just basically is like, you know, what do you need? Mm-hmm. A lot of times, it's stuff that these kids need that they don't have. It can be as simple as like a suitcase. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, their stuff gets moved in trash bags, which is a, such a terrible image. Oh yeah, yeah. But it it happens all the time. So I'm like, give kids suitcases. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's another great question is like, what, what do they need help with? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, Charlotte, this has been great. Like I've just been fascinated with all this. And <laughs> I mean, really it's, it's been, I've learned a lot today and, um, I really do appreciate your time on this. And just for the listener, we have been working hard at getting this interview. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's been poor, a challenge. Poor, poor Charlotte has been sick with the plague or something over the last few <laughs> few weeks and then we had some technical issues so i'm thrilled we finally got to do this and i really i'm I'm excited to hear the feedback on this from our our listeners so thank you so much for for doing this with us you are very welcome thank you the don't panic podcast is produced by teen lifeline your hosts are chris roby and carly duke with special support from ricky lewis the music you heard today comes from under the chandeliers you can find them on soundcloud or spotify If you want to check out today's notes and resources, visit our website, don'tpanicpodcast.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, at Don't Panic Talk. Finally, here's a word from our sponsor, Lubbock Christian University. Thanks for listening, and remember, don't panic. You've got this. Hi, my name is Becca, and all my professors at Lubbock Christian University know it. I never realized what a difference it would make attending a smaller university. I've traveled the world and I've had leadership opportunities you can only find at a place like LCU. I know that my experience at Lubbock Christian University is what gave me the edge to be hired right after graduation. Believe. Belong. Be blue. That's Lubbock Christian University. Do not panic.